Good afternoon. My name is Mia Swart. I'm a professor of international law at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa. And today I'm going to speak about the relationship between the African Union and the International Criminal Court, or ICC. Now, the establishment of the International Criminal Court was the realization of the dreams of those who believed that in order to prevent ongoing impunity, the international community should work together to establish a permanent international criminal tribunal. It was a dream that was shared not only by European and other Western states, but also by African states. So it was shared precisely by African states. It was established amid great international fanfare in 2002. And at the time, much was made of the fact that the ICC was the first permanent international criminal tribunal. But it soon became evident that the court was not truly international or universal, as is the case with many international institutions. At present, a third of the countries in the United Nations, including some of the biggest countries like the United States and China, as well as a substantial number of smaller countries like Syria and the Sudan, have not ratified the Rome Statute. As the court's first chief prosecutor, Luis Moreno Ocampo, focused investigation after investigation on African countries, this had an increasingly polarizing effect, which reinforced the fear that this court would only serve the West. As a result, the ICC was soon accused of being neo-colonialist in its nature. African countries were of the view that their sovereignty was threatened by the court. Now, one of the most promising and exciting aspects of the creation of the court was the large-scale signing of the Rome Statute. Um, this statute was signed on the 17th of July, 1998, and it was signed largely to a large extent by African countries. In fact, Senegal was the first country to sign the, the Rome Statute. And at present, Africa is the most represented region or bloc in the Assembly of State Parties, or ASP. The consensus-based nature of the ICC did much to bolster its legitimacy. This was widely seen as a more acceptable model for establishing an international court than the model used to establish, for example, the ad hoc international criminal tribunals, such as the ICTY and ICTR, that were established by Security Council fiat. In other words, not by the consensus of specific countries. Now, what was the reason for the souring of the relationship between the ICC and African countries? The relationship between the African Union and the ICC initially deteriorated in 2008, after an indictment was issued to arrest the Sudanese president, Omar al-Bashir. In the years since 2008, the relationship continued to deteriorate. So much so that by 2013, the tension between some African countries and the ICC reached a crisis point. The issue of head of state immunity has become the main point of contention between the two sides. Because, of course, al-Bashir was the head of the Sudanese state. And some believe the adversarial strands has been channeled through and encouraged by the African Union or AU. The AU has even, at you know, these big AU summits, asked its members to implement a policy of non-cooperation with the ICC in respect of the arrest and surrender of particular suspects. So one could argue that the AU 
undermined the ICC in this way. In this lecture, I will provide a brief history of the relationship between the AU and the ICC, and I will outline some of, of the reasons for the souring of the relationship, but I will pay attention particularly to this proposal that the ICC should, should be amended sorry, that the ICC should amend the Rome Statutes to provide for immunity for sitting heads of state. Um, I will also look at the amendment to the protocol of the African Court of Justice and Human Rights and criticize this, discuss the criticism of this amendment. Now, like many scholars, I'm of the view that the proposal by states such as Kenya to amend the Rome Statute to allow for immunity of sitting heads of state, um, in that case particularly it was um, the former president, President Kenyatta, and his deputy Ruto. Um, yes, my view is that this will be a retrogressive measure, since such an amendment will arguably be contrary to international law. It's worth noting that the case of Kenyatta and Ruto is unique in international criminal justice. Unlike other heads of state before international tribunals, um, Kenyatta and Ruto only assumed power after they became suspects before the ICC, the question of, or accused before the ICC, the question of whether sitting heads of state should be prosecuted for international crimes, was indeed one of the greatest points of disagreement in the recent standoff between the AU and the ICC. Now, the important article in the Rome Statute is Article 27. According to this article, it's clear that heads of state of member countries can be prosecuted. So immunity is not recognized by the Rome Statute. It was also not recognized by the statutes of the ICTY, the Yugoslavia Tribunal, or the ICTR, the Rwanda Tribunal. So it was therefore to be expected that the ICC would not recognize such immunity either. It will be argued that whereas customary international law on immunities may protect heads of state and senior state officials in respect of certain acts, it does not protect such officials from prosecution for international crimes. It will be asserted that the attempts and threats of African countries to withdraw from the ICC might have strategic or political value to those countries in terms of expressing a collective African position. However, such withdrawal will not lead to the achievement of the AU's own commitment to abolish impunity as expressed in the AU's own constitutive act. The act, for example, refers to respect for the sanctity of human life, condemnation and rejection of impunity and political assassination, acts of terrorism and subversive activities. Now, to go back to the background to the dispute between the AU and the ICC, African states played a crucial role in the creation of the ICC, as I stated before, um, of the 122 state bodies, 34 are African, and as I said, it forms the largest regional grouping. So as I mentioned, African states increasingly started threatening to withdraw from the, from the court, and South Africa, for example, threatened to withdraw as recently as last year. Um, it then deposited instruments with the court, with the, sorry, with the United Nations, uh, announcing that it was going to withdraw. It had to, however, withdraw those instruments um, because it didn't consult the South African Parliament. But certainly, this threat to withdraw was a serious threat. Um, now, one of the factors that strained the relationship 
is the ICC's like perceived bias against Africa. Um, as I said, there's been numerous indictments of sitting heads of African states. And this, of course, emerged as a major point of contention. Now, not only did African states uh, sign on, but many African states, such as South Africa, Kenya, uh, Benin, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Mali, Senegal, Nigeria, and Burkina Faso, have domesticated the ICC statute fairly soon after signing the statute. Uh, African countries were initially supportive of the establishment of the ICC and were of the view that this would be a positive development in global governance. According to Tim Riti, the memory of the Rwandan genocide convinced many African countries of the need to support an international criminal justice regime such as the ICC. African countries also viewed the ICC as a way of preventing powerful countries from preying on weaker states. African states played an important role in the court's ability to obtain 60 ratifications. This was the number that was required for the ICC treaty to kick in um, in 2002. Now, at the time, African countries raised objection to the self-exclusion of powerful countries such as the United States from the Rome Statute. The initial discontent of African states was caused primarily by the fact that they were the object of all the ICC prosecutors' investigations. To an extent, this has changed now. There is a, a pretrial examination um, in Georgia. The, the court is looking towards Colombia, for example. But still, by and large, the focus has been on Africa. To date, the prosecutor still has to more actively initiate prosecutions in other countries, in other continents. Now, whereas it can be argued that all international criminal prosecutions are inherently selective in nature, since it will always be impossible to prosecute every international crime committed everywhere in the world, um, the prosecutor's exclusive focus of Africa has still disappointed and angered many who look to the courts to provide universal and impartial justice. African states have accused the ICC of prosecuting crimes on the basis of political expediency that will not cause discomfort to the major funding states. Again, the ICC failed to convincingly respond to this charge. African states with poor domestic accountability mechanisms were clearly soft targets for a new court looking to establish its legitimacy. Now, why did African states ratify the Rome Statute in the first place? Several considerations likely pushed states one way or another. Poorer states might have seen the Rome Statute as a key to attract official development assistance. Non-governmental organizations might have pushed states one way or another in order to further their particular agendas. Now, it's been argued that some states engaged in a simple rational choice analysis regarding ratification. Whether ratification would marginalize domestic political competitors and benefit the sitting government would be one consideration, for example. Internal politics, just as much as international power dynamics, provide an important framework for understanding whether and why a state ratified the Rome Statute. Now I would like to move to the question of immunity, which, as I stated, is a major area of contention and the reason for the standoff between the ICC and the AU. Now, the issue of immunity arose in 2008 in the case of the prosecutor versus al-Bashir. 
when, as I stated, the ICC prosecutor applied for an arrest warrant for the sitting president of Sudan on charges of war crimes and crimes against humanity. He was later also charged with genocide. The application was brought despite the fact that Sudan is not a party to the Rome Statute. And here lies the rub. This precisely was one of the key problems, the fact that Sudan, against its will, was drawn into the Rome Statute system by a Security Council referral. So under Article 13b of the statute, the UN Security Council, acting under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, may refer a situation to the prosecutor where one or more of the crimes set out in the ICC statute appears to have been committed. The situation in Darfur was referred to the prosecutor in terms of Security Council Resolution 1593 of 2005. The Security Council not only granted the ICC jurisdiction over the matter, notwithstanding the fact that Sudan is not a party to the statute, it also obliged Sudan to cooperate with the court and the prosecutor, who would eventually demand the surrender of its head of state. The AU Peace and Security Council responded almost immediately by adopting a resolution stressing the ICC's complementarity to national jurisdictions and expressing its firm belief that the pretrial chamber's approval of the warrant could undermine the delicately negotiated efforts of the AU and the United Nations to resolve the conflict in Sudan. Concern was expressed that the issuance of a warrant may threaten efforts to promote peace and reconciliation, leading to the destabilization and further suffering for the people of Sudan. Now, the Security Council was requested to defer the proceedings against al-Bashir under Article 16 of the Rome Statute. In terms of Article 16, no investigation or prosecution may be commenced or proceeded with for a period of 12 months after the Security Council, in a resolution, has requested the court to that effect. So it's sort of being held on ice for a 12-month period. Um, now, notwithstanding the AU's concerns, the ICC pre-trial pre chamber decided to issue the arrest warrant for al-Bashir on 4 March 2009, prompting the Peace and Security Council to immediately issue a further communique lamenting the timing of the arrest warrant and restating its concern that the ICC process would seriously undermine ongoing efforts to achieve peace and security. So the Security Council was again requested to exercise its power of deferral over the situation, and once again, it failed to act upon the request. In light of the above, it's not surprising that at the 13th AU Summit of Heads of State in July 2009 in Sirte, Libya, African leaders resolved not to cooperate with the ICC in, security, in securing the arrest of al-Bashir. The Sirte re resolution of the AU was perceived as a violation of the Rome Statute and a betrayal of Africa's commitment to end impunity for human rights atrocities. Even among the AU states, the resolution was not wholeheartedly welcomed. Botswana, for example, publicly distanced, distanced itself from the resolution in a press release issued the day after the summit, stating that it does not agree with the AU decision and wished to reaffirm its position that as a state party to the Rome Statute, it has treaty obligations to fully cooperate with the ICC in this arrest and transfer of al-Bashir. 
at around the same time as the 2010 summit, Abushir traveled to Chad to attend the summit of the community of Sahel Saharan states. He was not arrested on that occasion. He's also traveled to Kenya, Djibouti, Nigeria, Uganda, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo without being arrested. Um, those are just some of the countries he's traveled to. Now, the non-arrest of al-Bashir by all of these countries led to a string of non-cooperation decisions by the ICC. Um, at this point, approximately 13 decisions in which countries such as the Congo were found to have not cooperated with the ICC. The immunity debate was again highlighted in connection with the situation in the Republic of Kenya, which arose when the announcement of the 2007 presidential election results sparked a wave of ethnic violence across the country, eventually leaving over a thousand people dead. A coalition government was formed after AU mediators broke the power-sharing deal between incumbent President Mwai Kibaki and the Party of National Unity and Prime, and Prime Minister Raila Odinga of the Orange Democratic Movement. The coalition agreed to initiate investigation into the violence, and a commission of inquiry was established for this purpose. The commission reported unprecedented and widespread acts of planned and also spontaneous violence throughout Kenya, recommending that a domestic tribunal be created to prosecute the instigators of the violence, or alternatively, that a list of suspects be forwarded to ICC prosecutor Moreno Ocampo for possible investigation and prosecution. When the proposed bill to establish a tribunal was rejected by Kenyan lawmakers, a sealed envelope containing a list of suspects was delivered to the prosecutor, and after further inaction by the Kenyan government, Moreno Ocampo applied to the pretrial chamber for judicial authorization to investigate the post-election violence. And this request was granted in March 2010, which authorized the court's first proprio moto investigation of a situation. So in a sense, the court did wait for, for the Kenyan process to take its course, for the commission of inquiry to make recommendations, which were then not followed up. Summonses were issued to six individuals, um, including Uhuru Kenyatta and William Ruto. Charges were only confirmed for four of these accused, and eventually the prosecutor withdrew charges against one. The Kenyan government challenged the admissibility of the cases, arguing that domestic law, law reforms, including the new Kenyan constitution, paved the way for Kenya to conduct its own prosecutions in relation to post-election violence and that the cases were therefore unadmissible under Article 17.1a of the statute. Article 17.1a is the statute on complementarity. The pretrial chamber rejected this argument on the basis that Kenya had failed to provide concrete evidence that it had initiated any investigations or prosecutions into the matters before the court a finding that was subsequently confirmed by the appeals chamber. Following national elections in March 2013, Kenyatta became president and Ruto vice president of Kenya. At the AU assembly two months later, the view was expressed that the ongoing prosecution of Kenyatta and Ruto undermined the sovereignty of the people of Kenya, who expressed a democratic will to be represented by the two accused. And that this threatened the country's process of reconciliation. Reiterating the 
points initially raised by the Kenyan government regarding the ICC's complementarity jurisdiction, the AU adopted a decision requesting the ICC to refer the Kenyatta and Ruto cases back to Kenya. Kenya further proposed that Article 27 of the Rome Statute should be amended to provide immunity for heads of state. And the idea was that African governments and African civil society should be on board with this idea. The proposal, of course, met with much resistance. It's important to emphasize that exempting heads of state from criminal liability before the ICC is contrary to international law as well as the rule of law. In 2015, the prosecutor had to withdraw the charges against Kenyatta and Ruto because of a lack of evidence as a result of the non-cooperation of the Kenyan government. And this brought an end, a provisional end at least, to the Kenyan cases. The ICC is currently the only international institution capable of effective prosecution of international crimes on an international scale. The track record of the judicial institutions of the African Union is disappointed. Now, I am mentioning this because it has been proposed that the African Union should take matters into its own hands and formulate or create an African institution that can take charge of prosecutions of this kind. And it has taken the shape of the creation of an African Court on Human and People's Rights that would become an African Court of Justice and Human Rights, which would then have extraterritorial jurisdiction and subject matter jurisdiction over international crimes. However, the problem with this proposal is that the track record of these African judicial institutions has been particularly uninspiring, and there is no reason to think that a new judicial institution will be more effective. The African Court of Human and People's Rights, for example, has only heard a handful of cases and is not currently equipped to take on prosecutions of this kind. Trying individuals for serious crimes is distinct from the African Court's present work and will place unique burdens and expenses on the court, such as the need for systems of witness protection, evidence collection, and detention of the accused. It's highly unlikely that a newly created African Court of Justice and Human People's Rights the court that is currently being proposed would be more effective. One of the most problematic aspects of the protocol creating the African Court of Justice and Human Rights, which is called the Malabo Protocol, is the fact that it introduces immunity for heads of state. So there we get back to the immunity debate again. So far, however, the protocol has not been ratified by any African state, and it requires 15 ratifications to become active to operationalize the African Court of Justice and Human Rights. In terms of African sub-regional courts, um, one could look at, for example, the East African Court of Justice. And this court has so far only arbitrated disputes between states. So again, that court is also not equipped to take on international crimes. Kenya's suggestion that, it's ex that it extends its jurisdiction to hear international criminal cases will not only stretch the mandate of the East African Court beyond its capacity, but it's simply unrealistic in light of the general inefficiency of this court. The ICC represents much more than a court. Both the AU and the ICC share the mandate and responsibility to address impunity on the African continent and to ensure accountability for gross violations of human rights and international crimes. 
The AU position need not conflict with that of the ICC. The AU and the ICC share important goals and objectives. Like the ICC, the AU and its Constitutive Act and the Peace and Security Protocol aim to prevent impunity for international crimes. Such principles are in fact contained in Article 4 of the Constitutive Act of the AU. These principles include the principle that the AU may intervene in a member state pursuant to a decision of the Assembly of Heads of State and Government of the Union in respect of war crimes such as war crime, sorry, such as war crimes, genocide and crimes against humanity. For the AU, these goals should not merely be rhetorical. Even if African countries should decide to withdraw from the ICC individually or en masse, African countries who were state parties to the Rome Statute would still be held to their obligations thereunder for some time. As members of the international community, such African states would have ob obligations to prosecute heads of state for international crimes in terms of Hughes Kogan's norms and in terms of customary international law. For the sake of the universality of criminal justice, it's important that African countries remain part of the ICC. The ICC is nothing less than a groundbreaking historical and diplomatic achievement. One of the most remarkable features of this permanent court is the fact that it was not imposed by security councils or resolution, but built by the consensus of states. African states themselves, therefore, have a strong interest in the functioning of the system they actively helped create. The ICC system shows respect for the principle of Euskogans, the principle that some crimes are so serious that the international community as a whole has an interest in prosecuting such crimes. The ICC's emphasis on complementarity means that the ICC may have positive spillover effects into domestic justice systems. The proposal by Kenya that Article 27 of the Rome Statute should be amended to provide immunity for hands of state should be opposed by African governments and African civil society. Disrespect for the principle of the irrelevance of official capacity for heads of state, either former or sitting heads, can do tremendous damage to the Rome Statute system. In light of the established international law on the functional immunity of heads of state charged with international crimes and the argument that customary international law is developing to this effect, African countries should not be supported to swim against the stream of international criminal justice. For African countries to withdraw from the ICC will not make them any more powerful in the international arena. I would like to thank you for your attention.